You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Thanks for downloading the 199th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, at the end of the last episode, on the southern end of the battlefield, after the Federals' capture of Burnside Bridge, the advance of the Ninth Corps had put the Confederate right flank in immediate danger of collapse and threatened the Army of Northern Virginia with final disaster. Yep. But then, in a scene that couldn't have been scripted any better by Hollywood, A.P. Hill's division of Confederates arrived on the scene from Harper's Ferry. And Hill's men were coming onto the battlefield at precisely the right place and at the last possible moment to save Robert E. Lee's bacon. A.P. Hill had left Harper's Ferry that morning with about 3,300 men, but straggling caused by the relentless pace of the 17-mile forced march, and the delayed arrival of Hill's trailing brigades meant that the actual number of troops he actually put into action at the moment of the crisis was probably around 2,000. But they were all combat-hardened veterans, and in addition, their impact was multiplied by the elements of position and surprise. Exactly. Hill's veteran Confederates came onto the field at just the right spot to hit the vulnerable left flank of the Federal Ninth Corps. On this flank were three regiments of Colonel Edward Harlan's brigade, the 8th and 16th Connecticut, and the 4th Rhode Island. The Rhode Islanders and the 8th Connecticut had seen some limited action along the North Carolina coast earlier in the year, but the 16th Connecticut was raw as raw could be. They had only been mustered into service on August 24th. On September 1st, they had arrived in Washington and on the 7th received orders to join the Army of the Potomac, where the 16th Connecticut would join Isaac Rodman's division of the 9th Corps. Now at Antietam, Rodman sighted A.P. Hill's Confederates angling toward his left flank from the south. Realizing the danger, Rodman galloped forward to sound a warning, but a rebel bullet hit him in the chest, mortally wounding him. He was the ninth Union general hit that day, and the third whose wound was fatal. Even as Rodman was shot down while riding forward to sound the alarm, Colonel Harland was riding back to warn his two trailing regiments, but his horse was shot out from under him, and he had to make his way toward the endangered flank on foot. A mix-up in orders had already put the 8th Connecticut several hundred yards ahead of the 4th Rhode Island and the 16th Connecticut in the advance, and so the 8th pushed on alone in a bold dash at a rebel battery near the Harpers Ferry Road and succeeded in capturing it, 
only to be hit in the flank by a vicious Confederate counterattack that killed or wounded half the regiment and drove the rest out of the fight. The victorious rebels then reclaimed their lost battery. Meanwhile, half a mile behind that scene, the 4th Rhode Island and 16th Connecticut were entering a large cornfield on the farm of John Otto. The corn stalks were still standing head high, and the field was full of uneven ground, and it was an altogether bad place to make a fight. As the unsuspecting rookies of the 16th Connecticut were advancing down into a low piece of ground in the field, A.P. Hill's lead brigade, Maxie Gregg's South Carolinians, approached the cornfield from the south and west. The veteran Confederate troops hit the Yankees with a surprise volley from two directions, and the attack threw the Green Connecticut boys into a panic. They tried to return fire, but they had loaded their muskets for the first time only the day before, and in the excitement here, many of them understandably forgot the complicated procedure. The 16th collapsed in a matter of moments. Lieutenant B.G. Blakesley wrote in his diary that, quote, Many necessary orders were given which were not understood. Neither the line officers nor the men had any knowledge of regimental movements. Down in the low ground in the cornfield, the bewildered men of the 16th Connecticut were picked off by the dozen by Gregg's South Carolinians. Gregg's troops also poured a destructive fire into the 4th Rhode Island. In the confusion and smoke, the Yankees were having a difficult time making out who was who. It didn't help matters that some of the Confederates had replaced their ragged clothing with pieces of Federal uniforms taken from the captured material at Harper's Ferry, and by the time the Northerners here figured out what was happening, the rebels were danger-closed and were working their, their way around the Yankees' flank. The 16th Connecticut broke in a complete rout, carrying the 4th Rhode Island with them. It was now about 4.30 p.m., and the entire left flank of the 9th Corps had been broken wide open by the hard-charging Confederates. A.P. Hill's successful counterattack from the south left the Federals from the 9th Corps, who had reached as far as the outskirts of Sharpsburg, in sudden jeopardy. With his left flank rapidly unraveling, Corps Commander Jacob Cox ordered those Federal troops who were threatening Sharpsburg to pull back. Those Federals, unaware of the disaster taking place off to their left, got Cox's orders to withdraw and went back cursing, furious at having to give up such hard-won gains when they were sure they were on the verge of victory. A.P. Hill had three of his brigades in the fight now, and they ran head-on into the brigade of Ohioans from the Kanawha Division that had been assigned to support Rodman. In the continuing struggle for the Otto Cornfield, the Ohioans, like the Connecticut boys and Rhode Islanders before them, also had trouble distinguishing friend from foe, and soon enough, the Ohioans were also outflanked and had to fall back. Riding forward to spur on his North Carolinians, Brigadier General Lawrence O'Brien Branch was shot in the head and killed instantly. He was the ninth Confederate general to be hit at Antietam and the third killed in action or mortally wounded. So, in a weird coincidence, Federals and Confederates matched themselves in each having nine generals hit and three killed or fatally wounded during the battle. 
The Confederate generals killed or mortally wounded at Antietam were William Stark, George Anderson, and Branch, while the Federals were Joseph Mansfield, Israel Richardson, and Rodman. Yep. Uh, September 17th was a dangerous day, whether you were a general or a private. Okay, at any rate, besides the Confederate cannon and D.R. Jones' divisional artillery, and in addition to the guns A.P. Hill was bringing up, Robert E. Lee had been hard at work scavenging pieces from batteries that had already been involved in the fighting north of town and rushing them to the crisis spot here on the southern sector of the battlefield. And so by the time Hill's counterattack was picking up momentum, it was supported by over 40 rebel field pieces collected from no fewer than 15 different batteries. Against their fire, the Union artillery that had earlier been advanced west of the creek across the middle bridge was badly outgunned and forced to withdraw. Just a short time earlier, the Ninth Corps had been advance, advancing on Sharpsburg, seemingly on the verge of victory, but now with A.P. Hill's counterstroke, the tables had been turned, and Jacob Cox was working desperately to assemble a last-ditch defensive line so that the Yankees would just maintain a foothold on the western side of the creek and not lose Burnside Bridge. After his visit to the northern end of the battlefield, George McClellan was back at his headquarters at the Pry House by this time, and he observed this alarming change of fortune on Burnside's front. At the same time, there came a new outburst of cannon fire from the extreme right end of the Federal line. That sudden eruption of noise seemed to signal the enemy counterattack that Little Mac had been expecting in that sector since morning. That firing did in fact signal Robert E. Lee's attempt to seize the initiative, but in no such strength as McClellan feared, and the Confederate effort ended before it really got off the ground. You see, back when the fight for the sunken road was still going on, Lee had called upon Stonewall Jackson to devise a counterattack on the right end of the Federal line that might relieve some of the pressure on the embattled Confederate defenders in the center. But even Jackson, ever eager to strike at the enemy, could find only a relative handful of rebel troops to spare for such an effort. He cobbled together a mixed bag of one infantry regiment, a few artillery batteries, and some cavalry regiments, and put them under Jeb Stuart's command. Stonewall instructed Stuart to swing around to the north, between the Potomac River and the end of the Federal line, and take the Yankees in the flank and rear. As Stuart marshaled his forces, Jackson told the Confederate infantry holding the West Woods to be prepared to move forward to support the counterattack when they heard Stuart's guns open up. On the Federal side, though, George Meade, who had taken over command of First Corps after Hooker was wounded, had assembled the Corps artillery in a formidable gun line on the Joseph Poffenberger farm, overlooking the ground Stuart was aiming to cross to get around the Yankees' flank. When Stuart's guns attempted to suppress the Union artillery over across the way, the rebel batteries were pounded into silence in 15 minutes. It was the one major Federal artillery victory of the day. Anyway, recognizing that there was clearly no way to get his force around the Yankee flank in the face of such fire, Stuart canceled the movement. Nevertheless, the outburst of sound and fury of the cannon fire from this sector 
was one more thing to weigh upon George McClellan's mind. Exactly. Because remember, while there was that outburst of sound and fury to the north, at the same time to the south, the Ninth Corps was being hit by A.P. Hill's attack. Newspaper correspondent George Smalley was observing the goings-on at the Pry House as the afternoon wore on. Smalley reported how, quote, McClellan's glass for the last half hour has seldom been turned away from the left. He sees clearly enough that Burnside is pressed, needs no messenger to tell him that. His face grows darker with anxious thought. Smalley saw Little Mac scan the 5th Corps troops held in reserve nearby, and then turn to Fitz John Porter, who was still at his side, and give Porter a, quote, half-questioning look. Smalley continued, quote, They are Porter's troops, are fresh and only impatient to share in this fight. But Porter slowly shakes his head, and one may believe that the same thought is passing through the minds of both generals. They are the only reserves of the army. They cannot be spared. Smalley read the two generals' minds accurately, as can be seen by a message that headquarters sent to Union Cavalry Chief Alfred Pleasanton at the Middle Bridge. You guys will recall how, last episode, Pleasanton had discerned how weak the Confederate defenders in front of Sharpsburg were, and he had requested that Porter's Fifth Corps troops be used to take advantage of the opportunity to utterly smash through the thin rebel line. But Pleasanton had been told that Porter had no infantry to spare, that, quote, the infantry he has is the only infantry the general has now to rely on in reserve. End quote. In any case, with an event of unknown significance seemingly taking place up on the federal right, and with a known crisis unfolding down on the federal left on Burnside's front, McClellan decided to leave the Pry House for the second time that day, and he and Porter set out for the left flank. They had gone as far as the Boonesboro Turnpike when a courier from Burnside met them. He reported that Ninth Corps must have more men and guns to hold its position on the other side of the creek. According to Smalley's account, McClellan glanced at the western sky where the sun was dropping toward the horizon and said, Tell General Burnside this is the battle of the war. He must hold his ground till dark at any cost. I will send him Miller's battery. I can do nothing more. I have no infantry. As the courier started to ride off, McClellan called out, Tell him if he cannot hold his ground, then the bridge, to the last man, always the bridge. If the bridge is lost, all is lost. That outburst was more than a little silly and melodramatic, even for little Mac, and it's generally agreed that he was engaging in a bit of theater for Smalley's benefit, sure that the newspaper man would record it for posterity. But anyway, on that rather ridiculous note, for all practical purposes, the Battle of Antietam came to an end. The Ninth Corps would finally hold Burnside Bridge and its foothold on the far side of the creek on its own. The Confederates here were simply too few and too exhausted to drive them back into the Antietam. And to the north, after Jeb Stuart called off the proposed rebel flank attack, the stalemate in that sector continued as well. The sun, glowing blood-red in the smoky twilight, went down at last, and the firing, like the light, faded away. Newspaper man Charles Coffin wrote that, quote, 
Gradually the thunder dies away, the flashes are fewer, the musketry ceases and silence comes on, broken only by an occasional volley and then single shots, like the last drops of a shower. As the firing sputtered out and as darkness covered the landscape around Sharpsburg, September 17, 1862, the bloodiest single day of the Civil War, the deadliest single day in American military history, was finally over. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. In Stephen Sears' book about Antietam, Landscape Turned Red, he writes that with the end of combat and the coming of darkness, quote, the field did not remain silent. The din of armies at battle was replaced by the sound of armies of wounded, a mournful and unceasing song of pain. Within the opposing lines, lanterns winked and bobbed like bright fireflies in the woodlots and fields as medical orderlies and stretcher bearers searched for the injured. Thousands more lay beyond aid in the no-man's land between the lines. This was a miserable night to me, wrote a federal artilleryman posted near the cornfield. Groans and cries for water could be heard the whole night. We could not help them. Sears continues, writing of how, quote, Survivors wandered about seeking missing comrades. It seemed to Kai Douglas of Stonewall Jackson's staff that half of Lee's army was hunting the other half, starting or ending their search at the field hospitals. These were nightmarish places, churches and farmhouses, and barns and sheds, packed with wounded men in numbers far too great for the medical staffs to handle. Hour after hour, blood-spattered surgeons worked by lantern light at their crude operating tables. 
Yet it seemed that for each man treated, two more were delivered by the stretcher-bearers. At that point, in the immediate aftermath of the fighting, no one really knew how bad the day had been. But when counts were eventually tallied, they were as bad as could be imagined. Casualty figures vary, but some reasonable numbers are, for the Federals, 2,108 dead, 9,540 wounded, and 753 missing. Confederate numbers are less certain, but their losses were around 1,540 dead, about 7,750 wounded, and just over 1,100 missing. In addition, at least 2,000 soldiers later died of their wounds, and many of the missing probably were dead as well, and so it's reasonable to estimate that between 6,300 and 6,500 men were killed outright on September 17th, or later died of their wounds after the fighting was over. All in all, the combined casualties for the 12 hours of combat came to almost 23,000 men. No single day of the Civil War or any other American war would surpass that terrible, tragic total. During previous battles, the Union Medical Department had had tremendous difficulties removing the Federal wounded from the field in a timely manner. The Battle of Antietam was the first time Jonathan Letterman, medical director for the Army of the Potomac, used the new ambulance corps he had developed. Every regiment had one to three ambulances, each with a driver and two men who were trained to move and care for the wounded. Although at Antietam the ambulance corps was inexperienced, it performed well, and all the wounded were removed from the battlefield within 24 hours. The Federals had at least 71 field hospitals set up in all available buildings on or near the battlefield. The Confederates had similar field hospitals, but little is known about them because their record-keeping was so poor, and many of the records that were made were destroyed at the end of the war with the fall of Richmond. Because of the overwhelming number of wounded, the Confederate field hospitals probably suffered from a severe shortage of supplies, since even the Federal field hospitals were handicapped in this regard. Most field hospitals had only the supplies the surgeons brought with them and whatever could be gathered from the local community. In one case, it's known that attendants bandaged the stumps left from fresh amputations with corn leaves. Many of the Federal's supply problems resulted from the fact that the quartermaster's department was in charge of shipping medical supplies and it tended to give them a low priority. Clara Barton, acting independently of any organization, brought four wagon loads of supplies to the Poffenberger farm, where there were about 1,500 wounded. A civilian organization, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, also sent a number of wagon loads of supplies of all sorts, which arrived the day after the battle because the commission had its own transportation. Clara Barton's efforts and those of the U.S. Sanitary Commission provided critical assistance since the Army's medical department supplies didn't begin to arrive until the evening of September 20th, three days after the end of the battle. That was also when the wounded began to be transported from the field hospitals to Frederick, about 20 miles away on the other side of South Mountain. Several hundred lightly wounded were able to walk there, while the rest were transported in ambulances by way of Middletown, 
where they were given food and a chance to rest before the ambulances moved on. All the wounded had been sent to Frederick by September 25th, except for about 600 severely wounded men who couldn't be moved that far. They were consolidated in two tent hospitals on the battlefield. Frederick had already received more than 2,000 wounded soldiers after the Battle of South Mountain on September 14th. Frederick had had a military hospital since 1861, located in Revolutionary War-era barracks, but doctors quickly opened six more hospitals in churches and other suitable buildings around the town. Some of the hospitals were expanded by use of tents. Interestingly, the medical officers noted that the patients in the tents tended to recover more quickly and with fewer complications than the patients in the buildings. Even with the expanded facilities and assistance provided by the town's citizens, not all the wounded soldiers could be cared for in Frederick, and more than half of the men were transported to hospitals in Washington, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. On November 1st, there were still more than 2,500 wounded in Frederick, but the hospitals there gradually closed as the number of patients decreased until, on April 1st, 1863, only the original Barracks Hospital remained open. The Confederates would withdraw from the battlefield on the night of September 18th, leaving about 2,000 of their wounded behind. They had already taken some wounded soldiers to hospitals set up in assorted buildings just across the Potomac in Shepherdstown, Virginia. The Confederates were able to evacuate some of these patients to Winchester in the Shenandoah Valley when they continued their withdrawal, but the most severely wounded again had to be left behind. In some cases, Confederate surgeons remained with their patients. The Confederate wounded who were left behind and who fell into Union hands after the battle tended to have a higher death rate than the Federal wounded, not because of any lack of medical care, but because the Confederates were the most seriously wounded. When Confederate patients were sufficiently well, they were sent to Baltimore or Fort Monroe to be exchanged for Union prisoners of war. Robert E. Lee would say shortly after the battle that he put no more than 35,000 men into action on September 17th. Ezra Carman, the most careful investigator of Antietam's numbers, estimated Lee's effective strength of all arms that day to be just over 38,000. Whatever the number, very few Confederates finished the day without seeing at least some fighting. According to Kai Douglas, quote, There were no unfought soldiers, no spectators, no reserves in the Army of Northern Virginia that memorable day. The overwhelming majority of federal casualties, in fact about 96%, came from 1st Corps, 2nd Corps, 12th Corps, and 9th Corps. Fitzjohn Porter's 5th Corps suffered hardly 100 casualties, all in skirmishing by the few regulars sent across the middle bridge. Franklin's two 6th Corps divisions that reached the battlefield lost about 440 men. Couch's division of the 6th Corps didn't even appear on the field at all before the fighting was over. When all was said and done, of McClellan's 75,000 or so available men, fully a third didn't fire a shot that day. 
That evening, Robert E. Lee's lieutenants gathered at headquarters to make their reports. They gave little cause for optimism, but Lee heard them out, then issued orders for rounding up stragglers, getting rations distributed, and for the rearranging of some frontline positions. But nothing was said of retreat. Obviously, in Lee's mind, if McClellan elected to resume the battle the next day, the Army of Northern Virginia would be waiting for him. And from the tone of McClellan's dispatches sent early the next day, September 18th, it seemed the fighting would indeed be resumed. At 8 a.m., he telegraphed Henry Halleck in Washington, saying, quote, The battle will probably be renewed today. End quote. Little Mac also telegraphed his wife that morning, letting her know the same thing. Quote, the contest will probably be renewed today. End quote. There was, however, a vital, if unstated, qualification to McClellan's statements, and it was that the fighting would only be renewed if Robert E. Lee chose to start it up again. For if the matter was left to McClellan, the Battle of Antietam was over. At 10 a.m. on the 18th, 6th Corps Commander William Franklin again proposed an assault on the Confederate left, and McClellan toyed with the idea for a while, or appeared to, but then vetoed Franklin's plan, as he had the day before when Franklin wanted to continue the fight on the northern part of the battlefield. And so the 18th passed peacefully. A truce was called to bury the dead and collect the wounded, and that night the Confederates withdrew unchallenged across the Potomac and back into Virginia. On the 19th, some of Fitzjohn Porter's troops crossed the river in an attempt at pursuit, but they withdrew without causing the Confederates any serious trouble. The next day, it was Porter's Federals who found themselves in serious trouble when a larger force of Yankees crossed the river and was given a bloody nose by A.P. Hill's troops. We'll be talking about this clash at the fort at Shepherdstown in the next members episode. It was said that of all the battles Robert E. Lee fought during the Civil War, he took the most pride in his performance at Sharpsburg on September 17th. At no other time did he face longer odds or greater risks, Yet at the end of the day, his lines were unbroken, and he had inflicted one-fifth more casualties than he suffered. In that narrow sense, he could claim the battle was a tactical draw. And, in defiantly facing down McClellan on September 18th, Lee could perhaps claim a moral victory as well. Against any positive benefits garnered during the campaign must be reckoned the loss of more than a quarter of the Army of Northern Virginia. Most of those casualties, of course, came at Antietam, which was a battle that, by most accounts, Lee aired badly in fighting at all. After the fighting at South Mountain, Lee retained no viable offensive options. He stood to gain not a single military advantage by making a determined stand at Sharpsburg. Harper's Ferry had fallen, but Lee's plans for his strike north into Maryland, and perhaps up into Pennsylvania, lay in tatters as a fully aroused Federal Army was closing in from the east. By inviting battle at Sharpsburg, Lee's back was against the Potomac. There was only one escape route at the fort at Shepherdstown should a crisis arise, and the superiority in numbers enjoyed by the Federals virtually guaranteed that Lee's army would face a bitter contest in any battle. 
Really, only Robert E. Lee's contempt for George McClellan and the expectation that Little Mac would again prove as utterly incompetent as he had on the peninsula can explain the Confederate commander's willingness to invite battle at Sharpsburg. Ironically, this battle that Lee, by all logic, should not have fought proved to be a showcase for the Confederate high command. Lee, Jackson, and Longstreet directed a tactical masterpiece. Colonel William Allen, who served on Stonewall's staff at the battle, wrote in his history of the Army of Northern Virginia that whatever might be said of Lee's decision to stand and fight at Sharpsburg, quote, the conduct of that battle itself by Lee and his principal subordinates seems absolutely above criticism, end quote. Allen concluded by saying that as far as Lee's generalship, quote, it is difficult to see how he could have more wisely disposed or more effectually used the means he had at hand. McClellan's contemporaries, by contrast, were highly critical of virtually every aspect of his conduct of the battle. Francis Palfrey, an officer at Antietam in the 20th Massachusetts and the battle's first historian, found nothing to praise but Little Mac's decision to fight voluntarily instead of being forced into it. He cataloged the vagueness of McClellan's planning and the indecisiveness of his leadership. General Peter S. Mickey, Little Mac's first biographer, wrote, quote, It does not seem possible to find any other battle ever fought in the conduct of which more errors were committed that are clearly attributable to the commander of the Army of the Potomac. And Ezra Carman, Colonel of the 13th New Jersey at Antietam, and author of what is still considered the definitive tactical study of the battle, was in full agreement. At Antietam, Carmen stated, quote, More errors were committed by the Union commander than in any other battle of the war. End quote. McClellan's refusal to renew the fighting on September 18th drew particular censure from his critics. But as Palfrey said, quote, it is hardly worthwhile to state his reasons. The fault was in the man. And we agree, the fault was in the man. As we said before, George McClellan may have been a top-notch organizer, but he was no field general, and we don't think he ever truly looked at Antietam as a battle that was his to win, but he saw it as a fight that he couldn't afford to lose. His conduct throughout the day shows he was always more worried about what Robert E. Lee might do to him instead of thinking about what he might do to Lee. McClellan would be as proud of Antietam as Robert E. Lee. He wrote to his wife saying, quote, Those in whose judgment I rely tell me that I fought the battle splendidly and that it was a masterpiece of art. End quote. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. As George McClellan saw it, his great achievement on September 17th was to, against great odds, battle Robert E. Lee to a draw, and in the process, avoid defeat, and thus preserve the principal field army of the United States. He had no intention on September 18th of renewing the battle and running the risk of defeat a second time. That Antietam was a golden opportunity to gain a truly decisive victory, a victory his army repeatedly very nearly won in spite of him, well, that was something Little Mac would not, and perhaps could not, acknowledge. 
But if Antietam was not as decisive a battle as it might have been, it proved to be a decisive event. Lee's gamble for a major victory on northern soil had failed. The Confederate retreat back into Virginia was sufficient cause for Abraham Lincoln to seize the chance to release his preliminary emancipation proclamation on September 22nd. We'll talk more about Antietam's aftermath and Lincoln's action in the next story arc after our upcoming break. But by giving Lincoln the opportunity he had been waiting for to make his announcement, Antietam arguably was one of the most pivotal battles of the war, and it was a fitting enough consequence of what one soldier described as, quote, a great enormous battle, a great tumbling together of all heaven and earth. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is two books of essays on Antietam. And both sets of essays were edited by Gary Gallagher. Yep, uh, Gallagher, as we mentioned before, is one of our favorite Civil War scholars and authors. And so we're happy to highlight these two books of essays as the final book recommendation, or final book recommendations, of our Antietam episodes. Uh, One is titled The Antietam Campaign, and it contains 10 essays covering different aspects of the campaign and battle. And then the other one is titled Antietam, Essays on the 1862 Maryland Campaign. And it has five pieces in it. So if you're interested in digging deeper into the campaign and battle, then you'll definitely want to pick up these two collections of excellent essays. You can find all of our Antietam book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And now we have a special announcement to make. Uh, You may have noticed that we've run through all 14 episodes of this Antietam story arc without taking a break. And we did that because we thought you'd appreciate having a new installment of the story to listen to each week, but we also did it because we have been working under a deadline, albeit a self-imposed deadline. But you see, we're going to be moving, so we're going to need to take some time off from the podcast. Yep, we're staying here in Colorado, but if you've done it lately, then you know moving is a lot of work and requires a lot of preparation and organizing. So now that we've finished up with Antietam, we're going to be taking the next several weeks off from the podcast so that we can get ready to move and then make the move to our new place. And that means if you're listening to this in real time, uh, or nearly real time, then the next new episode, which will be episode number 200, by the way, Uh, But we'll aim to have it out to you the weekend of July 9th. And we'll be excited to get back to it by that time, since we're going to be talking about the Emancipation Proclamation. And if you feel yourself going through Civil War podcast withdrawal while we're taking some time off, then we'll just remind you that there are over 50 members episodes available at the website. Yes, there are. So if you sign up for the Strawfoot Brigade, All those extra shows will be available for your listening pleasure. And we do want to thank the newest member of the Strawfoot Brigade, Eric, and also a special thanks to Pi for his donation this past week. Thanks, y'all. 
Okay, so I think that's about it for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again in a few weeks for episode number 200 and the Emancipation Proclamation. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, uh, if you're still listening at this point, then you're going to get a special bonus bit of Antietam trivia. You see, back when we started the Antietam story arc, we heard from listener Scott M., who urged us not to forget a connection between the battle and Canada. We had no idea that the music for O Canada, the Canadian national anthem, was composed by an Antietam veteran named Calixa Lavalle. Lavallee was from Quebec, but he lived in the United States for much of the 1860s. He joined the Fourth Rhode Island as a private in 1862, and on September 17, 1862, Lavallee was wounded at Antietam when the Fourth Rhode Island was hit by A.P. Hill's counterattack late in the battle. Uh, he survived his wound, uh, obviously, and went on to compose the music for O Canada. Calixa Lavallee was one of about 50,000 Canadians to fight for the United States during the Civil War. 